Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. On 882-6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barra and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. My guest in this episode uh, is, well, he has many titles. He's a, a WA Australian of the Year nominee. Uh, he's a haematologist, uh, but I suppose most notably he's been uh, on a campaign now for some time to bring uh, humanity, if you like, to healthcare. Uh, Dr. David Josky is our special guest. Welcome. Hi, Tim. Thanks for the chance to talk. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, can I ask you firstly, you're a haematologist, um, first and foremost. What does a haematologist actually do? Yeah, so saying you're a haematologist is um, a great way to kill a dinner party. <laughs> and it's a really good way to get the person in the chair next to you on the plane to stop talking. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not well understood, but in the same way that a, a renal physician is a specialist in kidneys, we are specialists in blood. Um, and we do a double training, partly laboratory, partly clinical. And so we can supervise laboratory um, results on certain sorts of blood tests and bone marrow biopsies. And then most of our time is spent um, in clinical practice and 80% of that is blood cancers. So a lot of my work is to do with treating people with leukaemia, doing bone marrow transplants, pretty heavy-duty cancer medicine, in fact. When you were going down the, the path of, of studying medicine, what drew you towards haematology? It was actually a late choice. Uh, my father was dean of the medical school when I went through, and he was a physician, which is the other side of the coin from surgeon. Uh, you know, we joke that surgeons operate, and it's pretty obvious what they do. Physicians kind of red pill versus green pill um, is a summary of our work. And so when I went through medical school, all of my surgical tutors would say, oh, so you're Josky's boy, are you? And then proceed to grill me. So it was um, <laughs> important I didn't let the family name down. And I kind of picked medicine because a lot of my father's mates seemed like nice people. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's fair to say I didn't really know what it was about. And even as a student, I felt very much redundant and superfluous and hanger on and in the way. And then in second year out from graduating... I suddenly realised what medicine was about. And, and in retrospect, it was because, and I say this to medical students, that I'm the kind of person that needs responsibility to feel like I belong. And as a medical student, it's it's not obvious that you actually do have responsibilities and can help. So, yeah, I did my physician's training here at uh, Royal Perth and then at Charlie's and then um, decided to subspecialise into haematology. And it was a great choice for me. Yeah. Did it, did it feel like it was just um, a fait accompli that you would 
follow in your father's footsteps into the world of medicine? No, I had several kind of crises of confidence. I remember in fifth year of what was then a six-year course, uh, that was really the, the, the moment where I most easily could have stopped doing it. I was really questioning why I was there and what I was doing. Um, and funnily enough, after I passed the first part of the physician's exam, before you sub-specialise, um, I had another kind of, well, I've passed that, but what am I going to choose to do? Um, and I picked haematology because it seemed a really nice, orderly body of knowledge, um, and it still is. And, and I got lucky because it's that branch of cancer medicine where all the new molecular biology breakthroughs have come first. So mm-hmm. we are able to bring to our patients in Western Australia a lot of the new cutting-edge breakthrough medicines. It's been fantastic to be part of that. Mm. You mentioned a moment ago that you, <clears throat> you really need responsibility in your life. You've certainly taken on a huge amount of that now um, with the creation of Solaris, Yes, your cancer centre. Tell us, tell us about that. Tell us firstly just what is it? What does it actually do? It was very controversial when we started. The, the basic idea is to use what is loosely lumped together as complementary and alternative medicines um, alongside the best of high-tech Western medicine to make it easier for people to get through the cancer journey. That's the very short version. There's a very long version that I could tell you over an hour. Um, <laughs> we have got time. If, if there's a version somewhere in the middle there, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, as as a, a green consultant in the 1990s, I reached the conclusion two or three years into my consultant career that we really were making a meal of this business of managing people with cancer. And I saw a lot of unnecessary distress a lot of anguish, kind of ripples of um, pain that were caused by late appointments and bad communication and misunderstandings. Uh, And I just felt like the system, although it was providing fantastic quality healthcare, when you look at it objectively, subjectively on the other side of the coin, it wasn't really uh, being humane. Mm. And that is worse Again, very well-intentioned and great people in the health system. It can be quite brutal. So, so no, no medical person will find a lump and wait six weeks for an appointment. And yet, that was happening a lot to, mm. to people in the system. So, I, I perceived a bit of a double standard, um, and it's probably a bit controversial to say that. And I just felt that there must be a better way to help people get through the cancer journey. And I made I made some personal decisions, uh, which I can talk about. And then through uh, a contact, um, the chance came up to build a cancer support centre. The original sponsor was Peterson Brown's Dairy. And um, it from the day we opened, which was September the 15th in 2001, it's just been 100 miles an hour, mm. reflecting the, the community demand for this. So the centre and now centres basically work on three levels. Firstly, people can just wander in, sit down, have some quiet time, have a cup of tea. We've designed the centres to be like an Australian homestead with a kitchen area, very non-clinical. At the second level, uh, we give people access to a lot of literature and information and support from the various specific cancer support organisations, including the Cancer Council, Leukemia Foundation, Myeloma Foundation, Breast Cancer Foundation, all of those. Um, 
And then the third level is to give people access to trying complementary therapies. And this is where the controversy came in, mm. certainly back in the 2000s, um, to bring in things like pranic healing and Reiki and acupuncture and music therapy and Qigong and yoga into a teaching hospital environment was just not done. Mm. It certainly had never been done in Australia. And so um, those centres provide what I call really very ancient forms of healing. And we need to be careful about the words here because in my brain there's a very clear distinction between healing and curing. And, and curing on the one hand is, is the eradication of a disease. And that's actually been the focus of Western medicine, especially in cancer. We, we design drugs and we chase to the nth degree small improvements in the survival percentage. That's fantastic. And if you look at the science and the breakthroughs we've made, it's just brilliant stuff. But on the other side of the coin is healing, which in, I define as getting people to the best place they can be given the hand of cards they've been dealt. And it might not be a curable tumour. Um, it might be a curable one, but psychologically they're just all over the place. Mm. Um, healing is about getting those people back to the best place they can possibly get to. Mm. And it's easy to overlook that with all of the political pressures on health in terms of meeting surgical waitlist times and bed turnover and emergency ambulance ramping and all of that stuff. But it, it's terribly important that we don't lose sight of the fact that this is not production line stuff. These are people. And we need to treat people as people and give them the respect they deserve. I imagine um, you were met with some resistance, uh, even perhaps ridicule from some, when you first suggested this uh, back in... 2001 or even before when you were thinking about that? I did and and I spent the first year and a half terrified that the head of some of the cancer departments would come in and say your people have told our person not to have cancer chemotherapy I'm going to close you down um, and, and in, in many ways what I was doing was putting my professional reputation into the hands of um, a bunch of therapists that Western medicine had turned its back on for 300 years because that's the history of this goes back a long way and uh, there are reasons for this split between Western medicine and this complementary medical world. Um, I got a letter from a surgeon that I used to do final year examinations with um, who was somebody who referred patients to the hospital and he was expressing very great uh, concern that patients were being exposed to quackery and that this was a repudiation of what the medical school stood for. And you can imagine with, with my family, that, that was pretty close to the bone. What, can I ask, just sorry to interrupt, what, what, what does the dad think of, of what you do, what you started? Oh, he's died if, now. He's, is, if he's a, a real purist, what did he make of your venture? Um, he was very supportive. Right. Uh, it surprised me how much he was because he was a very uncompromising very scientifically based professor of medicine. And, uh, and yet when uh, I remember the first time I got a nomination and went to Government House for the West Australian, the year award, Dad came. And, and that was a strong expression of support for what I was doing. And in some ways you might say despite his scientific, appropriately sceptical background, um, he got it and he could see that this was not about 
claiming cures and extravagant results, but really giving people uh, a new way of providing support. Mm. And the the volunteer effect and the laying of hands is very powerful. And and one of the great things about Solaris is that it really efficiently is a transducer of all of that energy and wellspring in the community to help into something very, quite literally, tangible. Dr. David Josky is our special guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories. We need to take a break, but we'll get into this uh, some more. Some Surely. of the, uh, the early challenges you faced in uh, building Solaris. Uh, this is 882 6BR. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Our special guest in this episode is Dr. David Josky. Um, David, can I ask the difference between sort of the, the terms complementary and alternative? I've, I've heard you speak before about uh, how it's, it's often incorrectly used. People seem to uh, almost use them interchangeably, but they mean very different things, don't they? Absolutely. They're, they're, they are completely mutually exclusive terms. And so we would say alternative medicine is, is a health practice you would do in place of mm. Western mainstream medicine. Complementary medicine means something you do as well as and, and literally meant to complement the, advan- the advantages provided by good quality modern healthcare. And in fact, we've moved on now to a kind of a third era, if you like, which is referred to as integrative oncology, where all of the major cancer centres around the world now have centres that are providing their patients access to these sorts of therapies. Is that one of the problems, do you think, um, <laughs> with the acceptance of these other types of treatments, the ones that, uh, that's, that Solaris uh, offers to people, um, you know, that, that people think that they're being um, touted as, a, as an alternative to not in complement uh, to the traditional uh, forms of treatment. Is that where, you know, you get that resistance, that pushback from traditional medicine where they feel like people are trying to replace the traditional options with these more holistic alternative treatments? Is that is that part of the, the issue, do you think? Absolutely. There, there's a prejudice. And to be fair, I think part of the prejudice stems from a very legitimate concern that this is a very vulnerable group of people who can be exploited. Um to be offered hope where the main mainstream system may not be appearing to do that. Um, the At the start of, of the centre, um, I had a conversation with a patient um, which really triggered the whole thing, actually. Um, and he, he said to me after several months of chemotherapy that it had taken him a long time to learn who he could talk to about what he was doing to help himself. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you know, we all sit out in the waiting room and, and we we swap stories and we say, have you tried shark cartilage? Have you tried latrile? Have you tried bush tea? Have you tried so on and so on? And the other person will say, well, yes, but for heaven's sake, don't tell Dr. X or Nurse Y because they'll, they'll poo-poo. Mm. At worst, they'll humiliate me. Or worse, I've even heard stories of people being refused further treatment because the doctor learns that they've been doing something that's off-piste. Mm. Um, but the the all-or-none thing has kind of arisen, partly because of this concern about 
um, on behalf of our patients. And partly because the belief systems in a lot of complementary therapies, and it's, our focus in Solaris is not anything oral or herbal, not supplements, but complementary therapies, a lot of the belief systems don't fit with Western medicine. And so a lot of the massage practices have a kind of basis in um, the East, in India, where there's a strong belief in this concept of energy mm. in the body. And if you say that to a medical audience, as mm. I have done, <laughs> the, body language, <laughs> the body language is instantly, oh, he's Here one of go. those. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, I, and I'll say this to a medical audience and then say, and yet, 80% of Perth GPs are happy to prescribe acupuncture, yeah. which is based on the Chinese medical concept of lines of energy in the body. So what is the difference here? So, so the attitude I have taken is to say, let's, let's not necessarily say there has to be a scientific rationale according to what we believe. Let's, let's dispense with that. Let's just focus on empirical results. So we'll do it, we, we will suspend judgment, but we'll measure it. And so a year or two after we started, we formed a research committee and started measuring the outcomes of the treatments we were providing. How do you measure that, though? Really difficult. Yeah. This is really hard research to do because... Because um, I imagine you're, you're having to find results that almost justify it to a Western-inclined audience. Well, it's a methodology that's the problem because yeah. every medical student on the planet is taught that the hard empirical evidence come from, comes from randomised controlled trials. Um, it's very hard to, to randomise, give people a choice between a complementary therapy and no complementary therapy when you've already set up centres that provide it. We, we got funding for a, a randomised trial and no, no patients were prepared to go on the trial. They just wanted to access the therapy. So we're kind of victims of our own success. <laughs> There have been some fascinating pockets of research. And so, for example, there's a study showing in people with chronic pain that if you do real acupuncture versus sham acupuncture, their brain PET scans are completely different. So how do you do sham acupuncture, you ask? Well, you use acupuncture needles like stage daggers where where the, the needle actually retracts inside the handle of the pin and so it doesn't pierce the skin. Right. And if you compare that to real needles done by an experienced acupuncture therapist, the, the brain PET scans are very different. And there's clearly a measurable, real physiological effect on brain of, of real acupuncture. And it reduces pain. And so over the 17, 18 years or so that Solaris has been about, have you noticed a, a shift in perceptions uh, of these kinds of treatments? Is there a greater acceptance now than there was, say, you know, at the turn of the millennium? Definitely. And uh, I recall speaking at a, a National Medical Student Convention uh, earlier this year, and I was asked by a medical student in the audience, how would you go about looking into this kind of knowledge? Where would you go? Um, and the answer is, you don't need to go to alternative magazines. You don't need to go to weird bookshops uh, with incense burning in the corner. If you go on to PubMed, which is the main um, worldwide recognised medical literature database, if you put in CAM, Complementary and Alternative Medicine, uh, in 1999, you would have got about um, several hundred hits. Now, if you do that, you'll get 66,000. So in other words, this whole Complementary and Alternative Medicine stuff has now entered mainstream medicine. Mm. And that era of 
complete scepticism, um, absolutely black or white, has gone. And now there are legitimate um, questions being asked about how we can use this to help. Mm. And so, again, another reason for the medical resistance to this is that it's a huge amount of work if, if you decide to buy into it. Uh, after my patient made that comment to me, I, I said to myself that either I'm going to have to buy into this complementary alternative stuff or there will always be this feeling from my patients that, that I'm not on board with them. There would always be a barrier between me and my patient. Yeah. And so I resolved to start doing the reading. And I found, to, to my surprise, more evidence than I suspected not in the big impact factor journals, as we say, but lesser journals, but nevertheless good evidence for a lot of these therapies. And so three examples. If, if we use massage in cancer patients, it tends to reduce anxiety. If uh, we use acupuncture, particularly involving a pressure point on the left wrist called P6, it can reduce the nausea from chemotherapy drugs very effectively. Um, in a good study done in Seattle... Uh, in my area of medicine, bone marrow transplants, they showed that patients who had music therapy after a bone marrow transplant had less depression and a shorter stay in hospital. Mm. And so there's hard evidence accumulating. It's difficult research to do. Um, but, yes, the, the, the climate and the atmosphere has changed. And yep. as I said, now all of the major cancer centres around the world will have some kind of complementary treatment centre attached next door. Dr. David Josky is our special guest in this edition of Inspiring Stories here on 882 6BR. Back with more in a moment. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6BR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6BR. Brought to you by Barra and O'Day. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Story. Everyone has a story to tell, and this one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Uh, in this case, the inspiring story of Dr. David Josky. Um, with Solaris, obviously, relies heavily on the work of volunteers, uh, and I imagine that uh, you know you're extremely grateful for for the work that they do. But uh, uh, in terms of volunteering, you had a stint as a volunteer yourself, didn't you? I did. Um, after uh, three years in medicine going through the ranks in the hospital system, I arranged to spend six months in Scotland. That was work. I was working in an emergency department. I was quite interested in emergency department and the urgency of emergency medicine. Mm. And then uh, I arranged to go with a volunteer group called Operation Rally, as in Sir Walter Rally, to basically go and build a school in the Amazon jungle, a very long way up river in Peru. Wow. And... um, To my surprise, when I got there, I was put in charge of a group of about 30 young, high-powered people from around the world, including some British soldiers, some squaddies, who were pretty difficult to manage. Um, And so we went upriver in our little picky-picky canoes and established a campsite and started building a school. I recall we had a a little hole in the ground, which was a tarantula nest, right in the middle of the campsite, and people used to feed it so that it wouldn't um, trouble us in any way. (laughs) God. and we started building this school a little distance upriver in a village. Uh, and in many ways, when I look back on it, that, that trip sorted out a lot of things for me in my professional life. Um, one, one incident was uh, I started doing some house calls up and down the river. Yeah. 
And um, I dropped in this village, and, and there was a, a young girl with an awful deep ulcer in the top of her head, down to bone. Um, and so in my best and newly acquired Spanish, I suggested to the parents in attendance that they give her two penicillin, two spoonfuls of penicillin a day. Yep. Dos cucharas de penicillina. And came back a couple of days later. Uh, first I got chased by the family bull, which was pretty humbling uh, and pretty scary. Uh, and then when they settled the bull down, um, I learned that they'd been tipping the penicillin onto the girl's head instead oh, of right. getting it to swallow. So, so much my Spanish. But, but I realised subsequently that the real problem for this girl wasn't so much the ulcer but that she was an orphan and and nobody was really looking after her properly Mm. Um, in doing those sorts of house calls I learned of myself that firstly I was pretty useless without the infrastructure of modern medicine behind Mm. me Um, and secondly that emergency medicine wasn't a good fit for me because I much preferred to know people for longer and and a four-hour knowing of somebody Yes, you might reverse a pop lung or undo an overdose, but but you're not you're not really having a a long term relationship with people, yeah. which is what I wanted as a, as a doctor. I realise out of that. Now that you're you're immersed in the world of cancer treatment, um, you mentioned that you know you you learnt then in in South America that you like to have sort of ongoing contact with your patients, steering away from say the emergency setting. Um, Having said that, you're, you're, you're forming relationships with people who are in the, the fight of their life in a very, probably the most difficult stage of their life. And of course, as, as the stats show, a lot of those people won't make it, um, you know, beyond the treatment. Um, what sort of a toll does that take on you personally? So again, this is um, something that's very, very dear to my heart and something that uh, I talk about with medical students. Um, when I was training, the, the dogma was that if you got into cancer medicine, you mustn't get too close to your patients. You, mm-hmm. you, you will burn out. You'll be too involved. The losses will be too hurtful. Um, when, when I um, started SLAS, around about the same time, I made a, a very conscious and very concrete decision to change that for me. And and I, I metaphorically threw off the white coat. And I, and I said, look, I need to be able to feel natural when I'm with my patients. And if I try and do this whole back thing, I found that I was just, it wasn't working for me. I felt awkward and uncertain. Uh, Whereas if I just relaxed, and sometimes that means that a friendship forms. Um, And I would let it happen. And uh, for me, it's been the right decision. There's very much still a, a line that that is professional versus unprofessional behaviour. Uh, but I found, for me, I could redraw it much closer to people. Mm-hmm. And and my philosophy has changed from um, the kind of health technocrat with all of the knowledge and do what I say to two people in a room, somebody with a health problem and somebody who wants to help. How can we solve this together? Mm-hmm. And And so... I have, a, I have a photo on the wall of my consulting room, which is a um, pretty bland, boring-looking photo of uh, some kind of trees and stuff. Uh, but it's a photo I took on the back of an elephant on a tiger hunt in the Chitwan National Park in India when I was 19. And I put the photo there, and I look at it before clinic starts, just to remind myself of uh, 
the person I was before acquiring all the artifice of medicine. And just to say, ego to one side, just be there as a person. And and so it's very much about human first, doctor second. And for me, that's the right order. And it mm. may not work for other doctors, but for me, it's just meant that I can relax. And I prefer to be on first name terms. And my, my clinic, I think... I'd like to think it has more the feel of a country GP and who knows mm. everyone in town. And uh, and that's just the way it works for me. Now, now sometimes that means that I do lose a friend rather than a patient. Um, but if I know I've done the best job I can, th- then that's, that's okay. It's worth it. You've we're, we're actually, it's a big glib to say, but we're the only profession with a 100% failure rate. Uh, yeah. And and we have this very death phobic society, uh, which is very destructive. And, and I'll tell you a story about um, my teenage years on that as well. But we we do have to accept as doctors that sometimes we can't offer immortality. And, and I'm sometimes referred people with advanced blood cancers for a second or third or fourth opinion, and will say to people after I've done all of my collecting of the information that I need and talking to people and seeing where they're at, I'll say to them, look, you actually need to realise that this is no longer curable. And and now the point has come where you need to shift your goals to a different set of hopes. And um, sometimes when you say that, the the relief on people's faces is palpable because mm. this this kind of artificially constructed, unrealistic hope doesn't have to be kept up in the air any longer. Mm. Um, the incident I was referring to is when I, I went to Java with um, a friend of mine when I was in fourth year medicine, so I was about uh, 20. And we crossed the straits over to Bali. I went down to Denpasar and hated it. And so we went back up to the north of Bali. And we heard there was something happening in a nearby village. So we, we put on our best sarongs and went along. And we discovered that it was the, the third day of um, a funeral ceremony for the son of a, a Brahmin priest in the area. And um, this young guy invited me in, and we couldn't speak, but we could understand each other in some weird kind of way. And my friend actually commented, you really click with that guy in some way that um, was not language. And they invited us back. And that night, um, I have a... a absolutely burning visual image of the dead man's um, brother and uncle doing the Wayne Coolit, which is the shadow play behind the screen with all the characters, and all the kids sitting down the front laughing away, and in the corner of the other, the other side of the room was a dead man just lying in state. And, and I still recall thinking, this is such a better way to handle death as a community instead of hiding it and, and running from it, as mm-hmm. we do in our society. And then the next day, the, um, there's a big procession. They, they dress the body in the effigy of a bull, um, and they went down to the local crossroads, spin the body uh, so that the soul becomes confused, and then burn it so the soul can rise. And from that point, they have to be that happy that the soul doesn't feel like it's got to come back. And so the last day or day and a half is this big... Mm-hmm. Um, we would call it a wake, something like a party, but um, just uh, such a, a more open and honest 
and ultimately healing way to deal with a death. It's so different to what we do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We need to take a break again. Um, after that, I'm going to ask you about what you do uh, when you do take the coat off and you're not in the, the hospital setting because I reckon it might surprise a few people. <laughs> Dr. David Joski is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR, brought to you by Barra and O'Day. This is still uh, WA's Inspiring Stories and we are still talking to Dr. David Joski. You might be forgiven for thinking your, your radio's playing tricks on you there, but uh, that's you, uh, Sands Lab Coat, uh, out of the hospital setting, Dave Joski, blues man. Indeed so. That's, that's the mighty Big Boss Beaver. Uh, Big named Boss after, Beaver. Yeah, the, the, the main guy in the band is a guy called Richard Beaver, who's uh, an orthopedic surgeon. Right. Um, and we've been together as a band for a very long time. That, that was a song I wrote, um, I regard as a highlight of my CV. I, I'm, <laughs> it, it won a whammy. Not a, just your music best CV. original blues song, yeah. You won a whammy award? Yeah. Wow. Uh, so that, that's something I brag about, actually. Yeah. <laughs> that's the first thing, uh, a haematologist second. But yeah. I, I can tell you, uh, we actually had a gig at the Paddington on a Wednesday night for about 18 months. Yeah. Um, where we got pretty good, actually, when you play that often. Um, but early on when we were playing there, um, I got up, we we're playing away with the band, and I noticed a whole lot of the nurses from the ward come in, uh, plus the mother of a patient on the ward and he was a patient of mine and he was a young man and he was dying with acute leukemia um, and when she walked in I, I just felt awful and I, I just felt terribly conflicted here I am up here having a good time and and look what's happening with her and her son but then the next day um, she caught me on the ward round and said look I just wanted to thank you for last night's music it, it gave me a chance to forget everything and get up and have a dance and just just blow out yeah and I've always been incredibly grateful for those words because I always felt like she gave me permission. And from that moment, I decided when I'm on stage and I'm a muso, that's what I am. Yeah. And uh, that's my release. That's my therapy. And fantastic therapy it is too. Yeah. Uh, so, so I that's write your, songs. That's your switch off time. Yeah. I write songs. Ben's not playing very much now, uh, but I busk regularly, uh, put out the guitar case and Really? Ask for donations to Solaris. Where do you where do you busk? Uh, there's a there's a fantastic little gym run by a legendary guy called Steve Smith in Claremont at the Lake Claremont Golf Course building there. So on a Sunday morning, sometimes I I play down there. Yeah. Sometimes with a mate, um, and it's it's a great thing to do. Um, just back to back to Solaris. Obviously, it's grown incredibly since 2001. It, just give us a picture of where you're at with Solaris now. How many locations have you got? So we became a foundation in 2006. Yep. Um, we continued the Centre of Charlie's and then in 2008 opened a second centre, uh, which is funded at 
by the St. John's Hospital next to the Jack Mendat Comprehensive Cancer Centre, the private hospital. Uh, that was our second centre. And then we have open centres in Albany and in Bunbury as mainstream cancer services have ramped up. Um, and then last year we joined with the Cancer Support Association in Cottesloe, which is going to be a focus of our after-cancer care survivorship yeah. um, treatments and so on. How do you keep it all going financially? Really hard. Um, we had a rough patch earlier this year. It's well known. Uh, we launched a public campaign. Um, one of our board members, Kirsty Danby from Platform Communications, set this up, did a brilliant job. And the the campaign has changed, Laris, because it's shown all of us involved with it how much the community values what we do. Uh, ultimately, that campaign on on the uh, crowdfunded website that raised one hundred and forty three thousand, and more money's coming from other quarters. So, yeah. so we're kind of um, most of half a million better off, and that'll keep us going for another couple of years. Fantastic. We're, so we're running five centres now. Each centre costs about two hundred thousand a year to run, basically, even though. Uh, we have a huge uh, workforce of volunteers, 350 volunteers, half a meet and greet, half a therapists, um, who often don't have enormous incomes in that world, um, but they're prepared to come in and give a morning or an afternoon, a week or a fortnight. Mm. And some of them have been doing this for 10 years. Fantastic people. And I noticed along the way you've also picked up a, a pretty notable patron in uh, none other than the Australian cricket coach, Justin Langer. Yeah, JL is, is a good friend of mine now. Yeah. Um, we met through that gym that I mentioned and Steve Smith. And I think we both realised pretty quickly we're both this kind of mind over matter um, yeah. belief. His career, he will say, was turned around by meditation. And um, he could see what we were about with Solaris, which is this whole thing of using ancient forms of healing to get people into something uh, much more settled frame of mind, even despite the most awful set of circumstances. Hmm. Why is the mind-body connection still such a foreign concept to so many who are trained in Western medicine? Well, in 1641, um, René Descartes wrote a treatise on the the distinction between mind and body, it was called, Um, and he founded the whole Western scientific method. And so for 300 plus years, we've had this whole thing that um, the mind and the body are separated. There's a whole lot of research now coming through that, in fact, they're very closely interlinked. Um, we, you know, we know that people who are depressed have impaired responses to vaccines, they have impaired wound healing. Mm. Um, there's not strong evidence that stress or depression cause cancer. There's some evidence that it tends to make it come back a bit. Um, there's no evidence that the positive mental attitude thing actually helps, which surprises a lot of people who know me and my background. And and so what I say to people under my care is don't worry so much about the positive mental attitude because you'll feel guilty on the days when you just feel too crap to mm-hmm. be able to manage that. But do get to a point where you can be calm about your situation. And that means being happy with your medical plan and then doing what's right for you in your own lifestyle to manage your situation. And whether that's complementary therapies, whether that's reading rooms of stuff from books and the internet – Whatever it is, you need to be able to wake up in the morning and say, oh, God, I've got this diagnosis, but then saying, oh, but this is the mainstream plan and I understand what we're trying to achieve with that and this is what I'm doing. Mm. I'm back in control. And one of the things that we've learned from Solaris is that it's frequently this switch because people come in and they're offered a 
chance to try a therapy and pick something, and they often feel like it's their first moment of choice since the diagnosis. And, and I see in my own patients, they come back from a visit to Solaris much more prepared to ask questions and much more empowered about their situation. Yeah. And that's probably, in some ways, the biggest benefit. Yeah. What's, what's left for you to achieve then with Solaris? Is it just a case of opening more centres to help more people? Um, oh, there's a million ways to answer that. <laughs> I'd love to have a centre op- uh, up and running at Fiona Stanley. That's, yep. that's the other major cancer centre that's kind of lo- locally. Uh, we need to give those people access to what we do, although the centre at Charlie's is free and open to all. Mm. Um, we have people in Joondalup who want to join us. We've started discussions with the similar centres across Australia to form a kind of national association of wellness centres. So I've been talking to people with Chris O'Brien in Sydney, the Lifehouse there, and um, the Olivia Newton-John Centre at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne and with Flinders University and so on. So setting up a national thing uh, is part of it. And, and another big area in cancer care... Uh, is what we call survivorship, which is this business of after your treatment's finished and hopefully you're on the way to a cure, although you may not know for several years, and that's a psychological burden in itself. But at that point, how do we get people back to maximum functioning? How do we get relationships going? How do we get Mm. them back to work? How do we get them uh, really having a meaningful life again? That's referred to as survivorship, Mm. and it's something that's just neglected, frankly, at the moment. Mm. It's As somebody famously said, it's as if we have all of these massive cancer treatments to pull somebody who's drowning from the water and then we leave them on the jetty to cough and splutter and get over it. Mm. Dr David Jossie, it's been fascinating getting to know you. Thank you so much for your time and, uh, well, all the best with uh, all of your future endeavours. I'm sure I say on behalf of thousands and thousands of patients and uh, thank you very much for what you do. Well, we've treated, uh, I think, now up to 12,000 Western Australians with cancer over Mm. 15 years plus. It's been a fantastic success story. It's Mm. a huge family, and it's not just me. It's much more than me now. Mm. Um, I just want to address a final couple of comments to your listeners. If you know somebody with cancer, um, there's a few things I'd say. Uh, The first is touch them. Uh, it's a powerful form of communication, and I don't mean a running bear hug at 30 metres, but just a pat on the back or a, uh, a light hug is very powerful, very reassuring. The second thing I'd say is respect their choices. They have the right to manage their illness as they choose to do. And then the really practical things that you can do to help are meals, transport, and childcare. Mm. Yep. A beautiful note to finish off on. Thank you. Uh, Dr. David Josky uh, is our inspiring story here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one has been brought to you by Bower and O'Day. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.